Hello everyone and welcome to On the Safe Side, a podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Alan Ferguson and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health and with me as always are fellow associate editors Barry Bettino and Kevin Drulli. Gentlemen, please say hello to the nice folks out there. Hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. This is our fifth episode, and once again, we're coming to you from our respective homes as the National Safety Council's employees are continuing to work remotely. So wherever you're listening to this podcast today, we thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We also hope everyone out there is continuing to stay safe and healthy during this time, especially those who have returned to work. And as always, we want to thank the safety pros out there are doing all they can to keep our workers healthy and living their fullest lives, as our president and CEO, Lorraine Martin, likes to say. And a sincere thank you for all of your extra efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. On this episode, we'll do a deep dive into one of our stories from the July issue of Safety and Health with Barry. And we're very excited to have experienced safety professional and fellow podcaster, Abby Ferry, with us for our five question with and our pop quiz. Okay, is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a closer look at a story from the pages of Safety and Health Magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. This month, Barry details a Duke University study that shows the wide-reaching effects of OSHA press releases. Barry, we have our mask and we have our fins. Will you please take us on a deep dive? I will certainly do so. Thank you, Alan. So, the story in our July issue shares some research that was done by Matthew Johnson, who is a a labor economist at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Health. And the big question that Mr. Johnson wanted to answer is simple, yet it's also complex. What is an OSHA press release worth? Uh, The answer, according to the research, is quite a bit. Uh, Johnson found that one OSHA press release had the same impact as 210 inspections. And that sounds like a pretty big impact, right? Well, the research project started with an agency-wide policy in 2009, And that was instituted by then-OSHA Director David Michaels during the Obama administration. The policy stated that OSHA would issue a press release about companies that received a penalty of $40,000 or higher. And this is what Johnson called regulation by shaming. Now, this policy was already in place in two OSHA regions, uh, Johnson found. That was New England, which is Region 1, and the Southeast, which is Region 4. But what Michaels did was he rolled it out across all OSHA regions. And he told me in an interview that the main thing it did was raise OSHA's visibility. And he did that by moving away from what he called cookie-cutter press releases. So he provided his own quotes for national press releases about fines for large companies. And he also encouraged regional directors to provide quotes and do TV interviews about press releases regarding large fines among companies in their specific region. And OSHA also targeted certain media outlets to share these press releases. Now, for example, uh, they would share them with trade publications in the same industry as the company that was being penalized, and also with the most prominent media outlets, such as newspapers and TV stations in the area of that company's headquarters. And Johnson, the Duke researcher, said that this led to significant increases in media coverage of OSHA. And what the policy also did, according to Johnson, was was first, it it had a negative impact on the company that was fined, of course. Uh, Secondly, it impacted companies in the same industry and region. And what the research noted, according to Johnson, was that there were 73% fewer violations among peers in the same industry 
within about a three-mile radius of the company that had been penalized. And according to Johnson, uh, in his research, the policy has been discontinued. It was discontinued in 2017 uh, by the Trump administration. Now, one source I spoke to did bring up some concerns about the study, and that source was Edwin Folk, who I learned uh, prefers not to be called Mr. Folk. Ed is just fine with him. Uh, and Ed Folk was the OSHA director from 2006 to 2008 during the George W. Bush administration. And while Ed said he appreciated the work that Johnson put into the research, he did say that uh, you can't look at this issue in a vacuum. Uh, and what he meant by that was, well, that, while companies certainly don't want to be the subject of an OSHA press release, uh, folks said there are too many variables when it comes to, to workplace safety and health. And you can't just say that just because of an OSHA press release, injuries and fatalities came down in a certain area or industry. And I thought he also had an interesting take. He brought up an issue uh, comparing two different companies as an example. Let's just say company A has one serious violation and company B has dozens of other than serious violations. And as folks said, company A will get the press release. But isn't it company B that has a bigger problem with safety? What did you find was David Michaels' motivation for instituting this strategy? Yeah, so Kevin, the, the motivation for David Michaels as, as OSHA's director was pretty simple. He mentioned that OSHA, in his words, is, is badly under-resourced. Uh, so he said he and his colleagues looked at how they could address the problem wholesale rather than retail. And by issuing press releases about these serious violations, this would, in his words, nudge other employers to abate hazards without OSHA having to do additional inspections. And he also said um, that reading about an OSHA press release in their industry or their geographic location would cause other employers to be reminded to do the right thing and make them want to avoid an OSHA inspection as well. And, and Michaels' comment was, whatever the motive, the outcome is the same. Uh, he also clearly wanted to raise OSHA's profile, and this was an effective tool in, you know, for him to do that. Uh, in fact, um, when I talked to Michaels about the 210 press releases finding, um, his words were, that's very powerful. So did the researcher have any indication about how this impacted workers? Yeah, Alan. So first and foremost was the was the reduction in violations by companies in the same region or industry. Um, so obviously fewer workers were being injured or potentially killed, according to, to Johnson. He also said that reading about these press releases made workers more knowledgeable about which companies were safe and which were unsafe. And he said that if you know a workplace has been unsafe, a worker can decide either A, I don't want to work there, or B, I'm going to negotiate a salary that compensates me for that risk. Folk said on the, on the flip side, he's not sure that workers would delve that deep in a job search to go ahead and read OSHA press releases. I also heard several anecdotes from Johnson and Michaels about their experiences on this issue. And Johnson mentioned that there was a group of dairy farmers that he spoke to in the Northeast and this group of dairy farmers got together and said, how can we improve our safety uh, so we don't become the subject of one of these press releases? Uh, and anecdotes uh, such as this uh, suggested to Johnson that these press releases got some companies to start paying more attention to safety and health. And Michaels tells the story of how there were, there were four fatalities at a DuPont facility in Texas. So he personally provided quotes for the press release uh, on the penalties issued to DuPont at that time. And he said... I was sending a message to DuPont. He said after that press release went out, the CEO of DuPont actually came to see him. And Michael said that because of that one press release, he said, I got the attention of the CEO of one of the largest corporations in America. 
Well, thank you so much, Barry, for sharing your insights on this interesting topic. For folks who want to learn more, please check out the July issue of Safety and Health Magazine. If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work, and we have a way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. Visit nsc.org wellness or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your coworkers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that's Family Safety and Health, brought to you by the team that brings you Safety and Health Magazine each and every month. You've seen our guest on this month's installment of Five Questions with dot, 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 lend her expertise to the pages of Safety and Health Magazine before. But make no mistake, Abby Ferry is no stranger to other forms of media. She's an avid podcaster, is active on Twitter, find her at, at @safetyabby, and also knows her way around a blog. Abby's a senior safety consultant in Minneapolis who has more than 17 years of experience in occupational safety and health and has worked with numerous industries, including construction, manufacturing, healthcare, hospitality, beverage, and retail. Abby, we thank you for joining us. Welcome to On the Safe Side. Thank you. It's good to be on the safe side, literally. Well, thanks for being here, Abby. I wanted to start uh, the interview today with uh, a quick question here. In a recent interview with Safety and Health, uh, you said that it was apparent that the quote-unquote new normal of the COVID-19 pandemic has helped many employers realize the difficulties and stress that workers face when it comes to balancing home and professional lives. As more workplaces begin to bring workers back, uh, what can employers do to ensure the, the focus on employee well-being remains at the forefront? I really hope that they just continue to keep it like in the communication. Um, I have really enjoyed, especially at my employer and what I've heard from friends, the, the extra communication or over communication that's happening between management and workers of, of really all levels. So I'm just hopeful that that sort of thing continues because I think that can lend itself to assisting an employee and an individual um, like ourselves make decisions where we can always move towards balance. Um, when you mention balance, I think of that as like a B word and I get, you know, little eye rolly about it because balance <laughs> is super, it's super elusive um, and it's a day-to-day -day thing. And I definitely get caught up in that anxiety over a lack of balance or a perceived lack of balance. Um, as we record today, it's the first day of summer vacation for my daughter. And I should put like air quotes, like summer vacation, because <laughs> I, I don't, I don't really know what I've been doing since March with my daughter at home, but it hasn't been pretty. <laughs> some days. So um, I just really hope that employers continue, the, like I said, the over communication, but also there's like this, this air of understanding um, and acknowledging that people are multifaceted and that they have a lot of competing priorities that are often competing with our work, obviously, but it's not just childcare, it's elder care, it's care of someone maybe completely unrelated to you. I know a lot of very caring people that care for people in their in their neighborhood and so just having that balance and and realizing that our workers are they've got a lot going on and 
we always have had a lot going on, but I feel like the COVID thing has really brought that to the forefront. And like I said, I just hope that continues because I think that that can actually lead towards um, potentially better mental health types of um, resources, or at least continuing those conversations for people to attempt to achieve that elusive balance. Well, at the top of the segment, as we said, we know you're based in Minneapolis, where some unrest and protests have unfolded in late May and early June amid a tragic event, and certainly that contributed to the working fabric in your state at that time and as as we record today and into the future. Um, are there principles of occupational safety that can be applied to safety at home and in the community, and what kind of overlap exists in your experience? For sure. And the the news here in Minneapolis is moving rapidly. Um, it, it really knows no Monday through Friday, nine to five cycle. I mean, we know the news cycle is 24 seven, but it feels super obvious and in our face. Now there was news over the weekend and I have people reaching out to me about the uh, disbanding, dismantling, defunding, whatever the right word is related to our police department here in Minneapolis. And so it's not like today out my door, there's, you know, crazy stuff going on suddenly and that there's no police. It's not like that. So uh, I think, again, going back to that over communication that um, what I really have seen is that public health has now entered the realm of what a safety professional needs to consider and not just consider, but become a student of in their workplace. So with COVID, that kind of laid a foundation that, hey, we we as safety professionals need to pay attention to what's going on in the world because, and I'm thinking of job sites for construction, like you can't just say that society's issues and the issues of the day that they stop at your gate and you can kind of like lock them out or put a sign there that says like, hey, drop everything from the real world. You're here at a job site. It's just not like that. Multifaceted people bring multifaceted um, issues, concerns, things that they're dealing with. I mean, there's people that live in those south areas of Minneapolis that um, they left home. You know, they didn't feel safe or they uh, still don't feel safe. And I had heard of employers that actually offered hotel rooms for workers that had to get out of the area. So who would have ever thought that an employer would have to think about these types of things and to be able to move so quickly? So again, that that over communication going both ways. Um, I think that employers need to be proactive in communication with their workers. And yes, it's a it's a sensitive issue right now, what's going on, what, what caused the unrest, what is causing unrest in other major cities of the country. I mean, it's not just us here in Minneapolis. There's people, you know, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Portland, New York. I mean, there's stuff going on in every major metro area. So, you know, you can look at us as like we're kind of the, the um, experimental area, maybe, with how things are going to go going forward. But don't be blind and think that it's not happening in your city or your town. So um, keeping a finger on the pulse of what's going on with society's concerns, whether it's COVID or it's civil unrest going on, um, which 
in our case, the last two weeks haven't has involved road closures, um, workers having to be mindful of where they're going each day so that they understand if a hotel is, is closed that they would usually stay at because they come from outstate Minnesota to work in the city for the whole week. And, you know, something's been been closed or otherwise changed because of what's going on. So people need to be nimble and keeping aware of what's going on. And it's really stretching uh, the safety professional, but it's also opportunity, right? It's great opportunity for safety professionals to show, hey, I'm on top of this stuff. I'm going to lead on communication. And I also have a plan. Um, and maybe your company doesn't have a plan. <laughs> and if so, there's lots of resources, obviously, from National Safety Council, um, local safety councils here in Minnesota. They've partnered on, on stuff with COVID from the beginning and also just other public health resources. So I really think it's a great opportunity for a safety professional to expand their expand their range, really, um, and become better professionals out of all of this. It's our time to shine. So I'm while there's a lot of stuff going on and it's really heavy, I think that if a safety pro takes on the mindset of this being an opportunity and a place where they can serve and they can help their organization, I think that's going to make things you know, just that much better and um, keeping the safety professionals centered in all of that. So you also serve as an adjunct instructor in the uh, construction management program at uh, Dunwoody College of Technology. Could you compare and contrast your teaching strategies in the classroom versus the job site? Huge pivot <laughs> in topics there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Dunwoody, I was just thinking, like, man, they've been they've been closed all semester. So when they go back in the fall, I'm I'm hopeful I can maybe be a part of that. But uh, the the short story of that is that honestly, if any of my past students were listening to this podcast, they probably would have closed it already and stopped listening <laughs> because it's too much. <laughs> so what I learned is that um, the younger folks, uh, and for the most part, it what the cohort that I was teaching at Dunwoody, they were uh, students that came directly from high school or maybe a year or two of college elsewhere and then came to Dunwoody. So very young. Um, Gen Z, you know, millennial to the core. Well, Gen Z, not millennial. Um, very different styles of learning. Very different, very, very different than the the learners that I'm used to in a construction and um, other general industry settings. Um, there's really and this is no knock on the students, but they just haven't had um, like real life work experience quite yet. Some have, you know, some are coming to the, those programs to be management in construction because they were working in the field in construction. So in that case, I've got something that I can work with. But for the most part, the students have zero job site experience that we can talk to each other in that lens or in that language about. So any tools that I've sharpened as a trainer or instructor in safety in industry completely goes out the window. And so it's... Um, I talked about opportunity when there's challenge, like let's just say there's a lot of opportunity when you teach college students. Uh, you really have to stretch, you really have to be very quick. Um, they want quick information, they want quickly to know um, why am I doing this, You know, why am I learning about this, and how is it gonna impact my grade, how am I being, um, 
how am I being evaluated? So you have to be very, and you know, this is good for any population, but I found especially that the, the college students need to know those things before we can then continue with the lesson. So here I would lesson plan these things and think, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to talk about cranes. We're going to look at pictures and videos of cranes and they're going to love it. And they're looking at me like, why do I care? You know, they, they have no frame of reference. They're actually not going to be graded on certain things I was pointing out to them. So, and also there was no, um, again, that no reference of like, I've seen this and I can apply this. So I completely had to develop new tools in my toolbox. And it was cool because, um, I also had to learn some different online lesson planning uh, tools. So things like Canvas and, and Structure and Schoology, like these are things that like real teachers use. So when you're an adjunct, you actually are a real teacher. So don't let anyone, you know, demean what you're doing. Um, but also what comes with that is you're a real teacher. You know, you need to lesson plan. You have to uh, make a syllabus. You need to come up with course outcomes. You have to come out with exams and testing and criteria and do the grading. It's just like classroom instruction like you would do at your employer but completely on steroids so it was it's something that i recommend to any safety professional and i i do this all the time i tell people contact your local colleges your local tech institutes tech colleges community colleges look at programs where they've got um literally anything automotive manufacturing um uh what I can't even think of anything else off the top of my head, electrical, things like that. Anytime they have programs like that, look in the course descriptions and see if there's something with safety. And if there isn't, suggest it. Because what I, I'm pretty sure that's how it kind of happened at Dunwoody is that it was a conversation from Dunwoody staff and also me bringing it to their, to their door. Like, hey, you should have a safety class for these students. And we looked at the semester and they would get well over 30 hours of instruction and classroom time. So I said, let's make it an OSHA 30 hour. So the students, not only they graduate from the program, but they also graduate and they have that card and they can take that with them to their first employer. And that looks pretty good. So, and then plus I could have, I think it was an extra 16 or more hours of classroom instruction. So, um, I'm very grateful for my time spent as an adjunct instructor. It's super fun, but man, it can be scary <laughs> at times and uh, very humbling, but highly suggested. That's a great lead into our next question, Abby. It kind of staying in school, so to speak. You, you have a unique story about how working for a contractor during the summer between high school and college really helped introduce you to the Masters of EHS program you eventually completed. Um, with the benefit of now being as an instructor on the other side, how have you seen safety education evolve or evolve through the years? I think, and this is no knock on the program I graduated from, and maybe it was my readiness as a student. I mean, I went straight from an undergrad program that I finished in three years in exercise science straight to the one-year master's program. So in four years in college, humble brag, I had a master's. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, um, in my master's program, there were students of all ages. And so I watched the, the older learners, and I was one of two of the youngest people in the program at the time, and also that had zero industry experience. So I watched the older learners really digest things completely differently. And they had that real world experience that they could, you know, make it work in their head and, and apply concepts without having to leave the classroom. 
me and other students that didn't have any real life experience were listening to things about, I remember like machine guarding and um, grinders, bench mounted grinders. And I was just like, what are we talking about? <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I got out into the field where a lot of things would click. So what, how I think safety education has evolved, I know for me especially, I, I took that um, those lessons and apply them when I would teach at Dunwoody. Now those students were in construction management, not in safety, but I realized that I had to give them some real world as well. So I would make sure to partner with people in the local industry and go out and look at job sites because if they don't see this stuff, I can't explain it to them. So or I don't have anything for them to relate things to. So we would do a lot of walk and talks. And I, at first I would, um, I would be really conscious of having a very solid lesson plan when we're out in the field, but also then would kind of hang back. One, I'd walk in the back of the class because I don't want to lose any students because I was then responsible for them. But also two, I could see what they were, kind of see their minds work a little bit. And if we needed to stop and actually look at a piece of equipment and say, this is a scissor lift and these are the safety issues surrounding this. And this is how I want you to approach this site when you're on your real job as a project manager, a superintendent, whatever they're going to do. Like it was my opportunity to almost like brainwash them for good <laughs> and say, you know, so that anytime they see certain pieces of equipment or see certain operations going on, I want them to think like me or take a little piece of, you know, whether it's my voice or questions that I would prompt them to ask the people at the job site. I wanted them to take that with them. And it, it takes a lot. I mean, when you're taking students that have never seen a work site, have never considered anything safety related, it's a lot to get them to think in a different way. And so I think safety education has evolved to to take that into consideration that we can't just talk about academic principles and theories of safety without giving the students some kind of realm or like frame of reference. And at my college at UMD in Duluth, it was even as simple as going to like the industrial engineers area and looking at some of the tools and equipment that they had. And that would help me to start processing some things in my mind that I was learning in like my OSHA 30 for general industry course. So I think the, the visual component and now also with some virtual reality or augmented reality or just more online stuff. I mean, I graduated in 03 from my master's program. We weren't really doing a lot of stuff online. And so now um, thinking to Dunwoody and how they had to cut their semester short because of COVID, they actually did a lot of online virtual training and it worked. Like the students could actually see real applications of what's going on. So I think um, it's not so much like the, the education slant or the approach has evolved, but that there's so many tools out there at our disposal. And so those tools are out there for any industry and that safety really needs to grab onto these. And there's, there's online um, education, obviously, for people to go through a safety undergrad or a master's program. So that's another way that education has evolved. And again, those have their, um, their pros and cons as well. So um, I just, I, I urge safety professionals not only to get into the, the teaching how, in any way that they can outside of their organization, but also to be mindful of what all those different tools are, those tech tools that we have available to us now. Well, we're relative new kids on the block to the podcast space. As we've said, this is our fifth episode. 
Um, but we do know that you're quite the veteran there and you approach some installments as if you were addressing a crew during a safety meeting or a toolbox talk. Um, which other approaches have you found to be effective in your safety podcasting approaches and career and what kind of feedback do you receive about the advice and coaching that you provide? So if someone wants to get involved with podcasting but doesn't want to take on the whole tech and back-end aspect of it because it kind of it can start to be a lot, um, I would suggest being a podcast guest, like looking out there and seeing first what podcast you listen to, and it could be safety or not, um, and identifying ones that you may want to talk to the, the hosts and just reach out. And if you've got some kind of angle or a story, storytelling is great on podcasts. Um, people like to, to be entertained. And so I think that that can work really well. Or if you have a, a technical topic that you are very well versed in, maybe finding like a very niche type of podcast that you could uh, propose uh, for yourself to be a guest. Um, from running the Safety Justice League podcast, we actually don't get a ton of emails or calls or DMs that say, we want to be a guest. Um, it's still a lot of reaching out to people that we see that are interesting, um, that are already putting out content because then we can kind of see what they look like, not what they look like, but how they come across. Um, how do they... Uh, interact with their audience. And so it's not that everyone has to be like super dynamic and unboring because sometimes a more uh, technical and not monotonous, I just got kind of monotone in my voice, but sometimes those types of speakers will go over well because um, there's a contrast with the, the podcast hosts. So first I would recommend being a, a podcast guest to just see what's out there, get some practice, see if you like it. Um, on the Safety Justice League podcast, we've interviewed a lot of people that it's their first podcast appearance ever. And whenever we stop recording, they always say, man, that was really fun. <laughs> so I don't know what it is about it, um, especially when you can see each other, that makes it fun too. But even if you can't see each other, that adds a different dimension, which can, again, it's a challenge, but it's an opportunity. So I think just trying it out can be a fun thing. Um, I wish everybody would copy what I've done with the Amazon Alexa device skill. Uh, I wish everybody would make uh, a flash briefing skill for people within their organization and help people um, add that to their daily flash briefing so they can just ask their device tell me my news and then your voice comes in there and tells them what they need to know and you can do that every single day. All I do and I'll, I don't care, you can copy me like I said, I just do a voice note on my MacBook. I drag it into my WordPress blog which I've set up to have an RSS feed of um, audio content that is then pulled into an Alexa flash briefing skill. So it literally takes me however long the content is, which I think this morning my content was maybe three minutes and then plus maybe two minutes to type it, you know, type out a blog post and um, mark it as podcast. And then it, I can almost within 30 seconds to a minute, I can go ask my Alexa device to play my news and, and there it is. So very easy. Um, if that sounds like too much, your IT people can help you. But I would, I would strongly recommend organizations do something like that. I wish I had technology like that available to me when I was working in construction and had job sites all over the country or all over the region where I could just buy a little device, plop it on the superintendent's desk and say, ask for the news. 
every Monday or every day, whatever. And then they would hear from me and say, take notes or just gather the crew around the device there's your tailgate meeting or there's your safety update, whatever it is. Um, so that's a fun way to do podcasting light because um, it's short content, but it could be internal for your company. Um, if you want to start a podcast, I think it would be fun to do something within your organization. I'm thinking of a company um, here locally. Maybe I won't name them just because I'm not sure if you guys are cool with that, but, uh, they have a podcast and it's about leadership. And so it's a podcast where they interview a lot of their internal people on leadership topics. So it's kind of like a get to know the person, but also talk about leadership strategies. And then that podcast is consumable by anybody. So it's a really cool marketing tool. And so I, um, I get really excited about this topic because I think that there's a lot of space there where safety people can support better marketing at their companies. And podcasting is a great way to do that. Um, pretty much everyone listens to podcasts. The listenership only is growing. And with more people working from home and doing uh, workouts at home, uh, more walking outside, which is great, more walking the dogs, which the dogs are getting tired. Um, <laughs> and they're listening to podcasts more when they're doing those things. And so our, our sweet spot is about 40 minutes. Uh, if it goes longer to an hour plus, if the content's good, great. Um, if not, we try to cut it back down to that 40 to 60 minutes. Sometimes we'll do 20 minute podcasts and that's awesome for, um, the Gen Z crowd that just wants a, a quick, just a quick hit of information. So you can experiment with different links. Um, it's tough to go the Joe Rogan route of like a, a marathon two to three hour podcast, but Hey, maybe it might, uh, it might work with your organization depending on the topic. So yeah, I just, for podcasting, I suggest just start, um, start your own thing or be a guest and just try it out and see what fits. So Abby, we always ask our guests on the safe side, a question about life away from work, which we call our pop quiz. And obviously, you're part of the aforementioned Safety Justice League, which is a, obviously a fun takeoff on the uh, DC Comics Coalition. And that had us wondering, who is your favorite superhero of them all and why? And this may be a Marvel character, DC, or even someone completely outside the comic book world. So kind of on brand, but as a kid, my first and, and most favorite, of course, being a 90s kid, is Batman. I loved Batman. I love the whole Batman universe. Um, the Prince song about Bat Dance, like that genre or that era of Batman, that is my jam and that secured Batman's place in my life. <laughs> um, I, I prefer black cars so I can look like Batman. Um, <laughs> It, it really seeps into a lot. Uh, and of course, you know, that works with, with Justice League. Uh, as, I've, as I've gotten older and, you know, more uh, feminist, girl power and looking around, like, why are all the superheroes mostly men? And when there's women, why are they dressed like that? Uh, but I do really love Wonder Woman. Um, I love the, the new takes on Wonder Woman with uh, the, the movies that have come out or the one movie. And then I think the, the new 
new one, Wonder Woman 1984, is coming out hopefully this summer. And I, if you haven't looked into the previews for that yet, the vibe is very Safety Justice League uh, with like that retro, modern, 80s into 90s, bright neon. You know, it's it's what we need right now. So those are my favorites. Um, my daughter right now is very into Spider-Man. So I'm really into things in the Spider-Verse and, and all that. So that's, it's fun stuff. We love superheroes at my house. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Abby. And thank you so much for all that you do for safety. You're very welcome. This is awesome. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of this podcast and, you know, talk to your audience. And I'm looking forward to hearing feedback from people. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. Thank you, Abby. Thanks so much, Abby. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. you guys. Now it's our turn to answer the pop quiz, and if any listeners want to chime in with their own answers, you can email us at safehealth at nsc.org or use the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. So I'll go first. I I also like Abby. I, I do like Batman. Um, and I, I also like uh, wisecrackers like um, uh, Deadpool. That's another one. But I was, you know, outside the... Uh, the comic book universe i was it, i was thinking when i was pondering this question is, is luke is luke skywalker a superhero so <laughs> i i guess i'd go with luke skywalker if i had to, <laughs> to pick one i'll make it uh, a third vote now for for batman um <laughs> although i i've not seen any of the christopher nolan movies really so i know that might be a, a pockmark on that pick but um no i certainly remember the the tim burton and joel schumacher movies and uh even during quarantine i still wake up far too early i don't know how to sleep in and by extension um ifc um often shows some of the 60s adam west uh, episodes and it's not habitual early morning viewing but if if you're up that early and it's on it's you know not the worst thing in the world oh those are pretty funny well i i'm gonna have to break from from the 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 pack here and i'm a spider-man guy and i'll tell you why there was a cartoon series That was, it was on from 1967 to 1970. I was in grade school about 10 years after that, and it was on every single day after school. It was an old cartoon series, and they had a very campy theme song that included the lyrics, Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. It was a very campy song. So I'm going to say Spider-Man. That really got me into all the different villains. I still have nightmares occasionally about the Green Goblin, uh, who who threw explosive exploding pumpkins from his flying (laughs) motorcycle, which was very cool. So I'm definitely a Spider-Man guy all the way. Okay. Well, we want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending some time with us today. And remember, if you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just a publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will help keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or learn more, visit nsc.org wellness or subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. Feel free to join us every month here at On the Safe Side, and in the meantime, feel free to tell a friend about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. To find stories such as Barry's OSHA's press release article and all the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com and make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. We'd like to thank our NSC colleague and sound guru, Chelsea Yang. Original music for this podcast was provided by Steve Maslin. On behalf of our team at the National Safety Council, we hope you and your friends and family are all safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 crisis. 
We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little during this trying time. Until then, please stay on the safe side.